0: Animal agriculture stands alone. No other sector is so important to climate change, and yet so under-discussed by politicians and media. About a third of planet warming emissions come from our food systems, and meat and dairy production is by far the biggest offender. In this six-part mini-series, we take a closer look at how meat shapes our society, our climate, and even our geopolitics. We explore stories from around the world, from a farmer's revolt in the Netherlands, to the giant hog farms of North Carolina, to cattle laundering in the Amazon rainforest. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hewan Park. And I'm Noah Gordon. And this is Barbecue Earth.
1: Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. This week, artificial intelligence. Now, you've probably seen it in the news. It seems like there's a growing chorus of important people in the AI community who want to warn the world about the very thing they're creating, AI. A group of AI leaders this week signed a statement saying the technology could even lead to the extinction of humanity. Their letter likened AI to risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Now, AI isn't new, but it's very clear that the technology and its applications are growing so quickly and entering all facets of our lives that the world is sitting up to take notice. As someone who thinks a lot about foreign policy, it's clear to me that AI, and the race to be number one in AI, is front of mind for leaders of all of the big economies. The question is whether we need rules for this journey we seem to be headed on. You'll hear many tech leaders call for regulation, but what exactly could regulation do? How should we think about it and who enforces it? Well, my guest today has spent a lot of time thinking about these very issues. Alondra Nelson is the architect of the White House's Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Since it was published last October, AI has only become more central to our lives, and Nelson has stepped down from her role as the government's head of science and technology and as deputy assistant to U.S. President Joe Biden. She is now the Harold F. Linder Chair in the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study. As always, FP subscribers send us loads of questions for these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLive for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. For now, here's Alondra Nelson. Dr. Alondra Nelson, welcome to FP Live.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Ravi. I'm delighted to be here.
1: It's really our pleasure to have you on. So I want to start with this. Industry leaders, as I mentioned, are warning of the risk of extinction from AI. And these leaders include the likes of Sam Altman, the head of ChatGPT. And it just seems so strange to me that the, the very people making a product and continuing to make that product are also telling us that there are all of these immense dangers from the thing that they are creating. So I guess the question in my mind is, why don't they just stop? What did you make of their statement and these warnings in general?
0: So there's been a series of of warnings, as you say, um over the last few uh, weeks and months, and I think we need to take them seriously. So when serious people, you know, business leaders, entrepreneurs, and also uh, you know leading scientists, you know, warn us, I think that we should take it seriously. But I think we also need to remember that we have an opportunity to create a different choice architecture, a different future for how we want this to play out. And as you suggest in your question, the same voices who are sort of ringing the bell of warning have a very important role to play in partnership with government, with civil society and the public in creating this different future. So that is having uh, you know, different expectations for what companies and what government should do, um, doing the technical work that it takes to sort of make the, the, the systems, the algorithmic systems, the AI tools safe, may even mean taking our time before rolling things out to make sure that they're safe and effective. So you know, when these warnings go up, I think it is a warning for all of us that we need to you know, combat and partner on these risks and harms. But there's also other harms and risks that people have been raising uh, the alarm about for several years um, as well, and I think this brings me back to um, the sort of framing of the the most recent kind of risk warning, which is putting then you know putting um, AI harms or AI risk in parallel with crime, climate risk, for example, and, and nuclear risk. And what we know from those other two examples is that governments, communities, businesses have had to learn over generations how to think about different risk timelines. And so while it might be the case um, that if we don't do something, you know, make some quick changes with regards to um, technology and values and, and governance and regulation in this moment, um, we are, you know, perhaps careening to um, a, a very unsafe and perhaps catastrophic future. It's also the case that we know how to, like in the case that we think about the climate crisis as a parallel, we are um, doing R&D and innovation around new kinds of glean, green and clean technology. We are working in the geopolitical space around things like the Paris climate, Paris climate, climate Accords and other kinds of geopolitical international collaboration. So there are ways in which we have to work, I think, across sector and across scale, and we can do this with AI as well.
1: So at a very basic level, and I understand this is cause for debate in the AI community, how do you even characterize the risks from AI? Is this something that there's agreement on?
0: I think there's agreement that there's risk. And, and so as somebody who's been a recent policymaker, you know, I want to go to the place of agreement and sort of see what work we can do there to create better outcomes for, for all of us. You know, AI has already suffused through all of our lives. So I I also want to just level set, I think for all of us and for the audience, we are always already living in a world in which there's AI all around us, daily transactions, daily interactions. If you use face ID on your smartphone, um, rental and mortgage decisions, recruitment and employment decisions, the very platform we're using Zoom right now, all of this is artificial intelligence, um, uh, algorithmic systems in some way. And we know that there are benefits, you know, some of the benefits are convenience, we save time, our ability to track, you know, large sums of information and data to help make predictions to make better decisions, hopefully, we can, you know, perhaps be better at modeling climate change, you know, predicting in the space of science, um, protein structures and these sorts of things. But there are also many challenges both created by ai and exacerbated by ai and some of these are more familiar and some of these are less familiar and some of them are you know more proximate and closer to us some are more um, in the future so right now we're, we're talking and rightly so about destabilization in the employment sector what is it going to mean for the future of work if ai and and more of the work that we do becomes automated We've been having a conversation for many years about bias and discrimination, the fact that um, AI systems, algorithmic systems, are trained on historical data and, and what they output often are historical and sometimes incorrect in discrimination, discriminating sort of outputs um, that have implications for you know, people's ability to have access to resources and, and social mobility. There are security vulnerabilities, you know. So all of the concerns we have about cybersecurity, for example, are kind of at scale um, when we think about the new advanced AI. There are of course sustainability issues. So uh, you know, if you've been um, been tracking. Um, Some of the very um, sort of computing systems that were used for crypto mining, which have now kind of fallen out of disuse, are now being used in some instances for um, advanced AI. And we know that they consume some of the work I did in the the Biden-Harris White House was uh, around thinking about the risks and benefits of crypto and certainly sustainability issues and what it does to um, the use of of shared resources and uh, how that might accelerate the climate crisis is a concern. Disinformation, misinformation, the erosion of democracy and public trust, and then, of course, potentially catastrophic outcomes that colleagues have warned about earlier this week. You know, we're looking here at societal scale concerns that we need to be thinking through. There are quite a lot of challenges and quite a lot of risks, but I think that it's an opportunity for us, I think, to work together across sectors. Um, and to think uh, together about about how to mitigate these risks, because it's clear what they are. There's not a mystery in what they are.
1: So let me ask you a question that, you know, might seem silly or obvious to you, but uh, I feel like I'm channeling a lot of the people I speak to every day. You know, we keep saying that AI itself isn't exactly new. There are risks and dangers and benefits that people like you have been working on for years, but something seems to have shifted in the last few months. And what is that exactly? Is it that the technology itself has advanced so much recently? Is it that this is more part of public conversation because people like me can use something like ChatGPT and we see real world applications in a way that we didn't a few months ago? What is it? And does that match up with some of the you know extinction of humanity level kind of alarmism that we are now hearing um, on public TV and radio and in the newspapers?
0: So it's both those things. It's that we have um, fascinating, in some instances, fun, in some instances, scary new technology. So we have large language models, other kinds of what are called um, by our friends at Stanford University Foundation models, uh, which are... More like sort of the creation of the internet and in that they have multiple uses, multifaceted uses. So they're, they're more kind of, how would I want to say this, more infrastructural, and they're more kind of ubiquitous, you can do lots of different things with them. So you can Create chatbots to uh, answer questions for you in a way that seems almost human-like. Although the human likeness is, of course, design choices made by the developers of the technology. You can create new images and using applications and technologies like MidJourney. Um, so there, are all, and these can happen and you know almost instantaneously um, if there's a significant computational power. And at the same time, as you suggest, it's being done in a way that's consumer facing. And so while people working in laboratories were familiar with these models and had been working with them, We're now living in the kind of first moment in which um, they're becoming consumer products. I mean, you know, Microsoft is talking about basically folding a lot of these powerful technologies into their Microsoft suite that many of us have been working with for decades. And now it's gonna have these kind of new capabilities. So the fact that it now, you know, some of the things that I was talking about, about AI sort of being suffused in our lives before kind of hummed in the background, the face ID on your cell phone, you're not really thinking, oh, AI is in my phone and it's just, you know, an automated tool has just done this. And now we're, and we're also able to, to work with the tools. And so to enter, there's, there's now platforms in place where you can engage them. So I think all of that has brought it to the fore. What it's also created, of course, is competition among some of the big technology companies uh, to be the first, the best to sort of win in this space. And so um, I think some of the conversation, uh, certainly about, risk and caution about the future is about I think their own concerns about whether they will stop themselves when they have such a tremendous profit imperative and the incentive is to outcompete other companies you know and potentially outcompete other countries um, and to to sort of you know be the first in class in a particular sort of product or market. And so we've got some you know some some complicated incentive structures here that I think, lead very, I think, um, powerful, creative, talented people who've brought us some amazing tools, uh, technologists, engineers, designers, um, to also say we can't stop ourselves. And the we can't stop ourselves, uh, I think, are, um, in some ways, is a is a crisis that we've constituted for ourselves. These things are not preordained. They are not already made. Um, and that, you know, that we can work together. And what I do appreciate about these colleagues is that they're saying, Maybe we need government to help somebody we need somebody to step in. You know, they're asking for intervention often um, for from other players to sort of help them help themselves and help them help society create better and safer tools.
1: When you hear AI executives and leaders say that they want to be regulated, I have to say, I for me it's a bit of a deja vu moment. I think of leaders from the tech community, social media companies saying, come regulate us, but You know, in reality, many of them were not actually in favor of regulation and did a lot in the background to prevent regulation from taking place. How do you see their claims?
0: As you said, I mean, this is a little deja vu, and we have seen how this plays out. And so I think I would just want to plant a flag that says, um, you know, self-regulation is not the way forward here. And to the extent that companies are asking for regulation. And we can talk about two specific examples. We can talk about OpenAI a little bit, and we can also talk about um, Microsoft. uh, Microsoft President Brad Smith um, came out with um, uh, some principles and some uh, uh, last week. So we wanna take them seriously, that they understand that there's a problem here and things need to be done. Um, But I think it's really up to government and to lawmakers um, listening to their constituencies, uh, partners in civil society, to create what these sort of boundaries and guardrails are going to be or to participate in the creation of what these boundaries and guardrails are going to be. So, you know, with with Sam Altman, who I take to be, you know, I've met him to be, you know, a genuine person to care very much about the work that he's doing. You know, when he was in Washington recently, Senator Blumenthal held um, uh, a hearing um, as part of a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee on Artificial Intelligence, in which Sam Altman, um, who is the leader of OpenAI, said effectively, we want to be regulated. Um, And then, you know, a week later, he goes to Europe and says, oh, well, maybe we're being a little overregulated. And in between, I think he sends out a tweet or something on social media that says, well, what we meant by regulation was the very, very big systems, the very, you know, the more powerful tools that are not even yet consumer-facing, the things that are in development. Everything else we, we, we would take by implication from his um, statement should be left alone. Like the status quo should otherwise remain. And I think that we have seen significant issues already with the large language models um, and the sort of consumer-facing tools that suggest that the status quo is not going to work and 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 maybe, you know, we need to regulate these new models and also the, there needs to be, you know, I think creative policy innovation and regulation in the things that are currently being used and being sold to consumers. And then in the case of, of Brad Smith, who I was really glad to see um, in uh, the sort of white paper that he put out last week, made reference to some of the Biden-Harris work that we had done. So he made reference to um, something called the AI risk management framework made reference to the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, um, uh, which I had the pleasure of of working on um, in the White House. But in the midst of all of this said that there should, companies should be able to self-attest, that there should be self-attestation about whether or not a company is meeting a certain safety threshold or meeting a certain risk threshold in the, uh, you know, or not, you know, uh, and the like. And so while I I think appreciate that, both of these moves as a, a first gesture, that can't be where we end up. And and we need to sort of keep Sam and Brad and their colleagues sort of engaged at the table um, who who frankly, you know, in many cases know the the technology best, but it's not, it it can't be the case, uh, particularly what we've been living through over the last decade with regards to the harms of social media that we turn over to companies solely to decide what the guardrails are going to be.
1: It seems to me that there's a trust issue in general with um, our tech companies and what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years with social media. As you point out, it's so clear that the private sector has led the charge in the development of AI, and they know so much more about it than our lawmakers do. And we've also heard from President Biden, who said that it falls to the companies themselves to ensure their products are safe for consumers isn't there a mismatch here? I mean, isn't, I guess when you, when you watch all of this play out, doesn't it seem like it's a bit of a a mismatch in terms of capability, private sector, public sector?
0: For for sheer technical capability? Absolutely. I I think that's, you know, I, I, you know, I I think um, part of the work that I did at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy was also about research infrastructure and um, science and technology research and development. And it is the case that private sector research, you know, is larger in many sectors than than government investments in research. And so not just capabilities, but actual investment and research in some instances in the private sector are are much much larger, like not just a little bit larger, 2x, 3x larger um, and the like. And so there is some capability difference, but I would say there's capabilities on the other side as well. I mean, one of the things if we're, you know, reading the the sort of cri de corps of our colleagues about the AI risk is them saying, we need government to help us, right? And so the capability on the government and governance side is about how to think about these trade-offs, how to use the levers of government to reflect what the public wants while also, um, you know, not staunching innovation and thinking about these very hard and complicated trade-offs. So, Government's not perfect; doesn't always get it right. But that kind of policy-making capability um, is a distinct capability as well, and need, and it needs to work in tandem with the technical capability. and And what we need to do here is not only technical; it's about aligning the technical and the capabilities with values um, uh, and and, the, and laws and regulations and the like. And so, so yes, there's a capabilities mismatch, but that should not, I think, stop us from from moving ahead. I would also say it's increasingly the case that very talented individuals are coming from government to industry, from industry to government and vice versa. So there's lots of capability. When I was working in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, I mean, we had probably, you know, a dozen people working on AI, you know, um, and, and, you know, who, some who had recently worked in companies or worked in companies in the past. Um, and so there is capability increasingly in government. And then I would just, as I, as I, as is my want, you know, I would I'd stick up a little bit for the lawmakers. So I think the lawmakers sometimes make it the language wrong, but the staffs are very good. You know, there are programs like tech Congress that are, for example, in the U S Congress that are bringing technical capability to congressional staff. Um, and so, you know, there, there is a growing, I think, infrastructure and capability, but industry is always going to have more. And What we love about innovation at its best um, is that that industry is always going to be sort of on this frontier, kind of creating kind of worlds and possibilities that we couldn't possibly imagine. So in some ways, it's a state that's to be expected, that kind of capability gap, even as we sometimes lament it.
1: You're listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations on video and live on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance. Those often end up framing the conversations I have. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hello, Foreign Policy podcast listeners. With so much news out there, it's hard to look past the headlines to what really matters. Did you know that FP has a slate of newsletters designed to cut through the noise? Our newsletters are a gateway to the best reporting and insight featured on foreignpolicy.com. What's more, they are free. If you have just five minutes to understand 24 hours of world news every day, try FP's World Brief. Interested in what's happening in China? Well, then FP's China Brief gives you all the context you need. And Situation Report is our weekly newsletter bringing you the inside scoop on what's really driving U.S. national security policy. There is so much to discover on FP. Head to com slash newsletters to check out all of our free email products. That is foreignpolicy.com slash newsletters.
2: Hey, FP Live listeners, this is Claudia. I work on some of the podcasts here at FP, and I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like npr's throughline you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been on each episode npr's throughline takes a story from the news and goes back in time to where it started to answer one important question how did we get here if you're interested in hearing more insights behind today's news stories like what's the supreme court's shadow docket or where's the line between entertainment and reality you're gonna love npr's throughline at a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. If you're interested in hearing more, you can listen to Throughline from NPR now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I want to draw a distinction, uh, Alondra, if I may. We, we've been talking a lot about sort of the private sector and its role in AI. But there's also the race isn't just a private sector race. It's also a public sector one. So you have the United States and China competing to be first on who gets to use AI in in the most powerful ways. Other countries as well have a big role in this. Just talk to us a little bit about how important that part of the race is, how we build rules for the road that could work for companies, but also for the whole world.
0: Yeah, great question and and a key question. So, you know, this is a it's a complicated issue. I mean, you know, as your question suggests, um, China is a big factor here for the US and for, frankly, I think the EU, the UK and thinking about the race, you know, such as it is with regards to AI i would go back to where we started a little bit ravi uh with regards to the sort of larger the sort of climate of risk that we live in and that we've come to to sort of um to live in with regards to uh, you know nuclear non proliferation the climate crisis and the like these are things that are societal scale planetary scale and even as we have global adversaries global competitors sometimes with widely different um ideas and principles about governance, Uh, you know, Chinese Communist Party on the one hand, the United States representative democracy on the other, of course, being the kind of, um, in some ways, polar opposites. I think that we have been able to find ways to sort of collaborate around these very significant risks. And so if we take seriously what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said recently, which is that on the one hand, we are not going to concede to authoritarian regimes right so that, that but there so there needs to be a slight decoupling but not a full decoupling there are things there are markets geopolitics that we need to collaborate and cooperate on and so we might think about um as i sit here in my office in in princeton that um at the institute for advanced study that is kind of a bastion in some ways of cold war history um oppenheimer was the director here for many times for for many years for example you know, we were able during the Cold War to have both an adversarial relationship and a, and in some ways a collaborative research relationship with Russia, for example, with the USSR. And so I think that we need, um, if we're serious about the risks, to be thinking about ways that you can close doors and open windows, as we say in ge- geopolitics sometimes, and, and think about what those spaces are. It's also the case that there are malicious state actors, and to the extent that there are national security concerns about keeping the American public, democratic societies, the globe indeed safe, um, that we need to be gimlet-eyed, clear-eyed about what that's going to require as well.
1: So how should we begin to think about regulation?
0: So I think we need to Begin immediately. So I I think that there, you know, what I think we should not do is sort of imagine that we've got to wait several years. And I'm thinking mostly from my US perspective. And so let me just stipulate that obviously, colleagues in the EU have been leading in this space for a very long time. And, you know, we are, um, I have great admiration for the work that they've been doing. And the US context, um, which I know best, it is the case that there are regulations that can already be used to help us get a handle on AI. So soon after the sort of advanced AI, generative AI turn happened, for example, um, it was the case that the US Patent and Trade uh, Bureau had to decide whether or not you could give copyright to something that was generated by generative AI. Um, And the answer was no. If there wasn't a human actor generating it, it didn't get um, a copyright, for example. So there are kinds of things already in place. And so the first answer, uh, Ravi, is, Use your, what you have and use it creatively. Innovate on the tools that we have. Um, Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. has been um, and her team have been extra, extraordinarily artful, I think, with regards to this. You know, she put out a statement a few weeks ago that said there is no AI exception to the law, which is to say that any sort of laws that we have around discrimination, around bias, consumer liability these sorts of things apply whether or not an algorithmic system or an AI tool is being used. And so, you know, I think we would want to empower governments, policymakers, legislators that just because we have a shiny new object that is operating in the social space right now, it doesn't mean that the laws, regulations, policies, guidance that we have in place does, does not already pertain to those things. So that's one. Second, it may be the case that we need new rules and regulations. I mean, what you know, what's going to happen with the labor market? We might have decided that copyright in the U.S. context must have a human being to be, uh, you know, um, uh, assigned to someone. But how are we thinking about training data? You know, how are we thinking about intellectual property and these sorts of things? Um, so we should think about new things as we need to think about them. I think also we want to think about. W- frankly, what sits in the kind of civil sphere and what needs to sit in the national security sphere. And maybe there's some overlapping pieces there as well. Some of the conversation around long-term risk and and sort of those kinds of concerns are perhaps better dealt with with some of the tools from the the regulatory tools from national security. So export controls, um, sanctions, um, having a, a real understanding of tracking the hardware, about where systems are going, who's building them, how are they being built, are these actors we, the U.S., want to be building these tools or not? Um, and then, you know, I think thinking about new tools and regulations um, as well. And then I would also remind you know many of us that certainly in the U.S. space, while we haven't been successful in Congress, it's been the case that over the last couple of years. Lots of people, pieces of legislation have been introduced that are the right types of legislation. So it's not that we don't know that we need general data privacy protection, that we need to think about competition and antitrust um, with regards to after the generative AI turn, already powerful, multinational, often US-based companies consolidating more power. These are things that have been on the table for a long time and that still need to be um, you know, we still need to get over the line with regards to, to regulation. So I would say we don't need to sort of make a whole cloth and imagine new regulation that I think we, in some ways we are, we are quite familiar with the things that we need to do. The challenge we face is around the political will to get them done. And I think what's been, you know, the kind of sort of chat GPT kind of, um, um, a large language model chat bot moment, I think has been invigorating and energizing for some. I think it's been um, challenging and scary for others. I would say that it's opened up the possibility, I think, for a broader public conversation about these issues so that the public can push their legislators to get some of this legislation over the hill, um, over the line. So, you know, it's not that there's not good ideas about what needs to happen. For example, you know algorithmic accountability you know algorithmic assessment and and risk assessment tools data privacy there's some good legislation out there um people need in the us context to call their legislators and tell them to advance the legislation and you know get them get get it passed and enacted and and implemented
1: you know i was struck by when you said that the starting point for any framework of regulation in ai could be drawn from the real world and existing frameworks of regulation. But then that made me wonder, isn't a lot of this about policing? Um, because it's one thing to have rules and regulations. It's a whole other thing to be able to monitor and police. It's hard enough to do that on the internet. It strikes me as so much harder to try and police, you know, what what is essentially computing and the internet on speed, AI.
0: I think that's exactly right. And we have, from the example of the EU, Um, instances of how hard this is, right? So on the one hand, May, you know, or this month, actually, or last month, yesterday, uh, marked the five-year anniversary of the GDPR. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw that the GDPR was used by Italy, I think, and also um, by France to try to put a speed bump on chat GPT and how it was being rolled out in their countries and to sort of address some of the concerns they had about the sources of data and these sorts of things. So, you know, yes, I agree with you that we need to you know that we've got challenges around the regulation, but I think that the regulation can be adaptive and that there, I think that there are ways that it can if you if you do it with I think some agility, that it can be, i think, sort of reimagined, and that regulators can use it in creative ways. I mean part of I think what needs to happen in the u s context is you know, I have an affiliation with the Center for American Progress, um, and and recently CAP um, uh, recommended that President Biden issue an executive order. And part of what that executive order um, recommendation suggested was to have current existing regulators um, really explore the full expanse of their regulatory levers and authorities and powers that could be used um, and directed towards artificial intelligence. So some of this is about, um, I think, uh, expanding the imagination and the, the sort of toolkit of regulators with some of the things that they already um, have in place. Obviously, in the US context as well, Robbie, some of it's about funding. You know, um, the FTC, uh, I think, is, 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 t- is, is seeking a budget increase. And that's being debated. It's about staffing for the regulatory agencies um uh, as well um and you know obviously there's been conversation about whether or not there should be you know new a new regulatory agency in the u.s for this space um and you know about which i have a little bit of mixed feelings i think
1: alas do you want do you think we should have one
0: I, i think it would take a very long time to do it well and i think that there are so um you know, we'd and want we to spend our time. The time. We don't, there are a lot of the issues that are happening now need to be addressed now. And um, I think a new regulatory um, agency would take many years to stand up. And so that might be the case that it, it would be a good outcome. But we need to be, I think, very honest that it's three, four, five years out before something like that would exist.
1: Now, I was trying to separate the issue of regulation from something you were deeply involved in. Um, when you were in the Biden-Harris administration, and that is the AI Bill of Rights. Um, Tell us a little bit about why we needed a Bill of Rights. Um, It's profound as an idea. Um, And how something like that would be different from a government trying to impose regulation on companies, countries, or societies?
0: Sure. So I think the conceit here, you know, we've had lots of, of Bill of Rights, you know, Ralph Nader had, a, I think, consumer Bill of Rights, you know, it's a it's a kind of, um, I think, political gesture that we've used for a very long time in the United States, in addition to our foundational Bill of Rights. And what we were trying to say here is that there are things that should remain true, even as the technology changes over time. So. Large language models, foundation models are just one type of automated system, one type of AI. There's lots of other types of AI technologies and development, machine learning, neural networks and the like. Um, And the technology is constantly gonna be changing. As I said before, part of what we love about innovation is that it offers us ways of looking in the world and doing things in the world that many of us had never anticipated before. Um, And what we can anchor on and what we can hold true are the things that we want all of these systems and all their variety and all their differential power to do. And and so that was the sort of what we intended to do here. We spent a year talking to developers, to academic researchers, to um, people in civil society, and a lot to the American public. Um, I came to Washington as a, a, you know, I'd never worked in government before. And the way that the government often engages the general public are through things called um, requests for information or requests for comment. And they're often wonky, they're very long, they're, you know, 28 questions it's asking you to answer and these sorts of things. And I understood as a relative outsider that, um, you know, to, 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 to sort of your average person that it could be very alienating. So we tried to create other pathways to get input. So we had listening sessions where people could come and speak their piece for two minutes Um, We did do a request for information on uh, facial recognition technology and biometrics. We had um, roundtables, lots of other input, and we distilled this into five principles that are actionable. So systems should be safe and effective. You should have protection against algorithmic discrimination. We should have data privacy. Um, You should know if an AI system is being used and you should have an alternative if you don't want to engage with an AI system, particularly for you know, kind of critical uh, ser- access to services and goods and, and these sorts of things. Um, but it also came out with um, a set of actions that the executive branch of the, by, you know, biden Harris executive branch could already do um, and were already doing, um, including the EEOC standing up work that was uh, using their levers to say that you can't, you know, that accessibility and the you, you know, the American Disabilities Act uh um, obtains um, when you're dealing with automated technologies. When we rolled this out in October 2022, the Department of Education had committed to providing some guidance about the use of automated systems in AI and education. And that was just released by the Biden-Harris administration um, last week at a time where people are very much worried about um, automated systems and AI being used in, in education. So these were kind of soft power levers, you know, this, but it was also kind of doing what I think the White House can uniquely do or, or number 10 or other kinds of executive agencies, which is really set a, a kind of the parameters, set the, the sort of bar high um, for the world that we want to live in. And then um, I think inspire people to use um, the actions that they have to to sort of get us there, including industry, including legislators, including communities.
1: And it's consultative and therefore more democratic, uh, gets you know people to feel like stakeholders. I really urge everyone listening to this conversation uh, to go to our website for a link to the AI Bill of Rights. It's really worth reading through it. Um, Alondra, we're almost out of time. And my last question to you is really to take everything we've been discussing. So regulation, um, the notion of a consultative involvement of people and citizenry and getting their inputs through the AI Bill of Rights. But taking those things in an American sense and making sure that we are able to build global rules, so something that would include China and the EU, something that would include the arms race and uh, nukes. Um, How do we make sure that these discussions that we're having um, that the EU is having, that they don't end up becoming a quilt patchwork of various different types of laws and regulations that malactors and even good actors could exploit?
0: Yes, I think that's the the challenge that we face. I mean, there are lots of efforts at coordination. So the OECD has had since 2019 sort of principles and, and sort of practices, regulatory suggestions around uh, AI. So that's a space. Um, the G7 uh, that met last month, the G7 summit re- um, released, uh, you know, or, 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 um the G7 agreed to sort of coordinate on AI through something called the Hiroshima AI process. And so those actors will be coordinating. Just this week, actually, in Sweden, um, the US-EU Technology and Trade Council is meeting, um, which is working on 10 different areas of technological coordination, including um, AI, which I imagine was very top of mind for um, the meeting. Uh, you know, I think these conversations will be happening with the G20 um, and in various kind other kinds of constellations of, of actors. I mean, you know, this is one of the most significant issues of our time because AI, it, 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 because it is a kind of infrastructural thing and that because it can be um, sort of spun out and created to, uh, you know, text and and it can have effects in the in in education sector and in different kinds of workplaces it's going to have and is having all of these kind of multiplicative um sort of impacts and transformative uh effects uh potentially um and so it, it it will require this kind of international collaboration in the same way we do with with other kinds of I think, high risk, high stakes um, endeavors such as those that we've been discussing, but other things besides, I mean, the UN has been working hard in this space as well. And I think that we need to use all of them and take the potential risk um, seriously enough that we're willing to to come to the table, both with uh, actors we're comfortable with and actors we, we sometimes are adversarial with.
1: Alondra Nelson, thank you for your time.
0: Thanks, Robbie. so great to be with you.
1: And that was Alondra Nelson from the Institute for Advanced Study. Next week, we're going to talk about China, but we have an interesting angle for you this time. We often discuss U.S. policy on China. Well, how exactly is it different from Europe's China policy? I'll have our very own James Palmer on from Washington, and from London, we'll have Cindy Yu, a China expert who writes for The Spectator. You will not want to miss this. Remember, if you want to watch these in video, live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FPs Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon.